0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
0: Now I want to invite Jen Freeman, the Institute's Senior Program Officer for Women, Peace, and Security, to introduce our
1: speaker tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dean Marquez. And thank you to all of you for being here. I think the speakers and delegates who are in the audience with us here tonight can attest uh, with me to the fact that it has been a pretty big whirlwind uh, of activity for the last two days uh, here at the University of San Diego. It's fairly reminiscent for how it's been for the past five months planning this conference. And before then, in my inbox, as we received the urgent calls that were coming in through our Women Peacemakers listserv for our alumni in Sri Lanka, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, Kenya, and elsewhere. Violent extremism was on the rise, and frequently, as we've seen, its first targets were the rights and bodies of women and girls. In response to those calls, we refocused our fall conference— which coincides annually, as Dean Marquez said, with our Women Peacemakers Residency, entitling it, Defying Extremism, Gendered Responses to Religious Violence. The religious violence in this case is a bit of a misnomer. It would have been more accurate, but completely unwieldy to entitle it, Defying Extremism, Gendered Responses to Violent Ideologies Appropriating Religion to Advance Their Political, Economic, and Social Agendas. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Agreed? Our conversations have been rich in plenary panels, in small working group sessions, and hearing from the personal testimonies of victims and survivors, former extremists, and their family members. We've examined the complex motivations and recruitment strategies of violent groups such as Boko Haram and ISIS, Buddhist extremists like. Bodu Balasena and 969, and homegrown terrorists in the United States, the UK, and Canada. Crucially, we are examining how gendered strategies and bringing women's voices and uh, energies and initiatives to the fore can change the unbalanced reliance on military and counterterrorism strategies. The continued rise and growth of militant movements is demonstrating, I think we can all recognize, that bombing campaigns are not working. Along with our co-conveners and partners, we are setting the stage for both a seminal report and an ambitious plan for collaboration and regional dialogues to be held in Africa, Asia, MENA, and Europe in 2015 and 2016, doing our small part to fulfill Joan Croc's challenge for the Institute to not only talk about peace, but to make peace. If I think back to where we first settled on the idea of holding this conference, We consulted three authorities on who to invite. First, our peacemakers. Then, our partners and co-conveners. Then, in a more distant but still relevant, uh, third, the internet. We were waiting for expert recommendations from our co-conveners when we stumbled across a TED Talk entitled When People of Muslim Heritage Challenge Fundamentalism. This was certainly not a revelation for us like it might have been for the TED community, but we clicked on the film of a woman speaking, Professor Karima Benoun. Her personal background growing up in Algeria where her father, Mahfoud Benoun, an outspoken professor at the University of Algiers who faced death threats during the 1990s for speaking out against fundamentalism and terrorism, inspired her to research the hidden stories, hidden in the Western media at least, of Muslims challenging violent extremism, It was then especially fitting to receive an email from our highly respected co-conveners, one of our highly respected co-conveners, we have a few, Women's Learning Partnership, recommending and connecting us to Karima as an excellent resource to bring to defying extremism. Her book, Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism, answers the question that we hear far too often. Where are the moderate Muslim voices standing up to these groups? The question baffled me because we work day in and day out with Muslim peacemakers and their sisters in Muslim-majority countries who risk their lives to stand up to groups like the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf, Al-Shabaab, and now ISIS, Boko Haram, and others. Obviously, it baffled Karima, too. She set out to interview people who are today doing what her father did back then, to try to garner for them greater international support than Algerian Democrats received during the 1990s. We are honored to have her join us here to share those stories and while she feels they are so crucially needed. Please join me in welcoming Professor Karima Benou.
0: Good evening. Thank you all very much for coming this evening. It's really, really wonderful to be here. I am going to show a PowerPoint and I should confess from the very beginning that I am slightly technologically challenged, so please bear with me. And I would also ask you please not to take photographs of the PowerPoint. Thanks very much. So it's a real honour and a privilege for me to be here this evening, to be here for this conference, and I really want to thank the Joan Croc Institute for Peace and Justice and its wonderful staff for the incredible welcome that we have received, for the work that they have done to put on this tremendous meeting, and for inviting me to take part. They are doing, it seems to me, exactly what Khadija Gambo from Nigeria implored us to do yesterday, which is rather than amplifying the voices of those who do evil, to amplify the voices of those who, armed only with their moral moral courage, defy evil. I also want to thank the Women's Learning Partnership and AWID for suggesting my participation. Likewise, I am sincerely grateful to all of the other participants in this meeting from whom I have learned so much in the last few days and honestly before whom I feel a bit humble taking the floor this evening. I especially acknowledge those who have spoken of their own trauma and I can't name them all here, but I think of Vicky Ibrahim who told us through her tears of what it is like to see your beloved son radicalized. Or Margaret Orage from Uganda, who told us about her experience of surviving the indescribable violence of the Lord's Resistance Army. Or Fawzia al bakr who told of her arrest for having taken part in the legendary Saudi women's driving protest, and there have been so many others. We are all honored by your words and inspired by your valor. And I actually wanted to dedicate to all of those here tonight doing this work against extremism a few lines of poetry that were actually sent to me last night by an Algerian woman who lives here in San Diego. He just showed up in my inbox and it happened to be that the poet is a friend of mine, a journalist named Lazhari Labtar who runs one of Algeria's independent publishing houses and who himself wound up on death lists back in the 1990s for working against fundamentalism. Now it struck me late last night when I received this poem that in fact it was a perfect articulation of the kind of commitment that so many of you have evidenced. Please note that this is my English translation done very quickly last night, and the French-language original is much more lyrical. L'Azharie wrote, If our martyrs for freedom spilled their sweat, their blood, for the joy and the happiness of our people, we too, in our turn, will give all that we have, my love. From the blossom of our hands, in petals of flesh, we will braid one by one the white pearls and the pink pearls of beautiful dawns from the fullness of our days. And I know that's just what so many of you are in fact doing. Allow me also please to welcome a special guest of my own here this evening, Mrs. Betsy Amarouche, who was my seventh grade teacher in Algeria. I was her student at the best school I have ever attended, the American School of Algiers, of which she later became the principal. And I am so honored by her being here because I learned so much from her. I also loved that school. At that international school, we all studied, we all played soccer, in my case, not very well. Uh, I studied well, but the soccer was not so good at. We all did this together in a beautiful old Turkish villa. We were Algerians, Americans, Pakistanis, Canadians, Namibians, Brits, Indians, Saudis, Germans. And that school really taught me that a world is indeed possible in which children learn and play joyfully together irrespective of borders or backgrounds. And then the school had to close in the 1990s due to the fundamentalist terrorism that came to plague Algeria in those times. In fact, the very last time I saw Mrs. Amarouche before tonight, I believe, was on June 16th, 1993. I gave the commencement address that day at what turned out to be the penultimate graduation ceremony the school would have. The mood in Algiers was very tense, as the day before, a fundamentalist armed group had assassinated Dr. Mahfoud Bousibsi, one of, El, one of Africa's leading psychiatrists, who had done pioneering work on single mothers in Algeria and had bravely spoken out against the fundamentalists when they tried to besiege a hospital in Algiers during their 1991 general strike. Mrs. Amarouch herself later had to flee the country when the armed Islamic group began killing the foreign wives of Algerians. That group, the GIA, tried to destroy a world in which an international school was even possible. But in the long run, the amazing thing is not that the school closed, but that they couldn't stamp out the spirit that allows a school like that to be possible due to the incredible courage of ordinary Algerians and activists in resisting terrorism and in resisting the hateful Islamist ideology that inspired it. Today, there are, in fact, new efforts afoot to reopen an international school in Algiers for English-speaking children, and I hope that that may take place very soon. And I firmly believe that those who try to close the world will always ultimately be defeated by those who try to open it, because even after all the stories I have heard in my research, or perhaps especially after all the stories I have heard, I believe that in in the human heart and in the human imagination, the default setting is open, not closed. But often a very high price has to be paid to get to that world, that open world. So With that introduction, this evening I'm going to talk about some of those whom I had the honor of writing about in my recent book. You see the cover here on the screen. Your fetwa Does Not Apply Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism. What I want to do first is to tell you a little bit about how I wrote the book and why I wrote the book, and then my plan is to tell you five stories of very courageous women, uh, either women that I met or women uh, whose... Accounts of whose uh, heroism are in the book. We'll see if I get through five stories or not, because I certainly want to hear from you all as well. So please think of each one of these stories as representing thousands and thousands of others. It is so difficult to select the stories to fit in the book and the stories to share with you this evening. But as Rubina Bhati from Pakistan said yesterday morning, in one story there are many untold stories, and that is certainly the case in the book and in my talk. So for this research, I interviewed nearly 300 people of Muslim heritage, you see one of them here, from nearly 30 countries, from Afghanistan to Mali. And I did this specifically to learn about their opposition to extremism and terrorism. It was an incredible journey, and I hope now that readers and more and more readers will take this trip with me and that the stories will come to have meaning for them as well. I dream that they will recognize that the fight by people of Muslim heritage against fundamentalism everywhere is one of the most important human rights struggles in the world today. And I hope that they will never again generalize about the people we simply call Muslims. People like those I wrote about unfortunately do not get significant Western media coverage. Have you ever heard of the stalwart Iraqi human rights advocate, Samira Salah al-Naimi, who you see here, who was tortured for four days and then executed by ISIS in her hometown of Mosul in Iraq on September 22nd after publicly excoriating the brutality of ISIS? She had the courage to denounce, in particular, the destruction in Mosul of historical sites by this brutal group, and we should know about her. Have you ever heard of Selwa Bugegis who you see here on the right, the amazing Libyan lawyer who had long opposed Gaddafi and then battled the Islamists who sought to replace him? On June 25th, 2014, armed men likely from those same Islamist militias that she had opposed assassinated her at her home in Benghazi. And again, we don't see her image and we should. Have you heard of the Somali woman singer and parliamentarian Sado Ali Warsame, who was gunned down on July 23, 2014 by Al Shabaab in Mogadishu? She was most famous for a Somali protest song called Land Cruiser that decried Somali officials back in the presidency of Barre for driving around Mogadishu in big vehicles while children were starving. And I encourage you to go and find the video. You can still find the video for Land Cruiser on YouTube. As you can see, this year, women's human rights defenders of Muslim heritage have faced a very grave crisis indeed both in terms of the violence that claimed the lives of these women, but also the ideology that promoted their killings. While many are speaking out as they all did, we need more and more people of Muslim heritage and other people of goodwill to do so, to stand in support of these women's human rights defenders, and I appeal for that this evening. But we also need people in the West to recognize, to hear, to listen, to identify those who are doing that. We cannot accept that Bill Maher can go on HBO and say that no Muslims are speaking out because they are too afraid because that disappears the amazing bravery of these women and so many others. Now the people I met in these three years were incredibly diverse and that diversity among people of Muslim heritage was one of the most important things that I wanted to convey in the book. So I interviewed all sorts of people. I interviewed sheikhs, uh, religious scholars. I interviewed bloggers. I interviewed housewives. I interviewed sexual rights activists. I interviewed people who excused themselves to pray in the middle of interviews and others who drank wine to toast the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad, which is a big holiday in North Africa, though one that is frowned on by fundamentalists. Now, the people I met included the woman you see here. I'm not the greatest photographer, but she's an amazing person. She is an imam's daughter in Niger named Aminatu Daouda, who promotes the CEDAW convention, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So this is an imam's daughter, a religious leader's daughter, who wrote her master's thesis about the UN CEDAW convention and believes that treaty to be entirely reconcilable with her faith. I also met people like Deep Saida, who you see here, a free thinker from Pakistan, the head of the Pakistan Institute for Peace and Secularism Studies, who regularly organizes demonstrations against Taliban abuses and other terrorist atrocities in Lahore, despite being threatened regularly and told that suicide bombers will also come to her events And here you can see a protest that she organized against the blasphemy law after the sentencing to death of a Pakistani Christian woman named Asya Bibi. And she was told specifically that suicide bombers would come to this event. And she said, well, come if you must, but we'll be there too. And there they were. I interviewed a man whose photo I cannot show you and whose name I cannot tell you, but I will never forget him, Mr. Boudmar. Mr. Boudmar managed to keep his school open. He was a teacher who became a headmaster when all the other teachers, many of the other teachers fled. Mr. Boudmar kept the school open in his northern Malian town, when not only the town, but the school premises itself was occupied by Mujau, the West African affiliate of Al Qaeda. And he insisted on continuing to educate girls and boys together in the same classrooms. And I asked myself, given these kinds of stories, why are these people not more recognized internationally? I asked this question in the TED Talk. I mean, why is it that everyone knows who bin Laden was, but so few people know of all of those standing up to the bin Ladens or the would-be bin Ladens in their context? We absolutely have to change that. And that was really the motivation for me in carrying out this research. So to try to contribute in some small way toward winning them more recognition and more support that they need and deserve for the amazing work that they're doing. And I also did this for very, very personal reasons, uh, as was mentioned in my very kind introduction. So my own father, Mahfoud Benoun, who you see here, was an anthropologist of Muslim heritage from Algeria, who like so many others, and he would have insisted I say that, like so many other Algerians, risked his life throughout the 1990s to stand up to extremism in his home country. Even when he was driven out of his apartment and forced to stop teaching at the university because of the numerous death threats that he received, finally he got one on the kitchen table that said, consider yourself dead. Even at that point, he stayed inside Algeria, as so many did, and he continued to publish and sign his name to pointed criticisms of both the fundamentalists and sometimes also of the government they fought. And here is one example of one of those articles. It is a brilliant three-part series published in the Algerian newspaper El watan in November of 1994 called How Fundamentalism Produced a Terrorism Without Precedent. And if you're interested in reading this article in English translation, I put it on the website mahfoudbenoon.com that I made this year, because I think one of the things we need to start doing is reading what people are writing out there on the front lines. There is amazing analysis that we are not often aware of. So in this article, How Fundamentalism Produced a Terrorism Without Precedent, he very openly denounced what he called the terrorists' radical break with Islam as it was lived by our ancestors. And he deplored the way that they, as he saw it, trampled Islam underfoot in the name of jihad. So I have to say, really, my book was inspired by this. His unwavering determination to stand against extremism, whatever the cost, was the ink with which every single letter of my book was scrawled. And I think that recognizing these women, these men who have stood up to the fundamentalists is an urgent necessity. Uh, and I think this because, again, of the experience of the Algerian Democrats of that period, my dad only being one, thousands and thousands of others, they got virtually no international support during that time. The international community didn't listen to them. Uh, and did not seem to even grasp the threat that they were facing, the nature of the threat from the ideology of Islamism and from this form of jihadist terrorism. This was the pre 9 11 world. The victims were uh, North Africans who seemed to be sort of far away, and the world largely looked away. And I think that that is absolutely wrong, and that has to end, because I know that doing this work on the front lines without international support or comprehension is a lonely endeavor. And here you see a brilliant Malian lawyer, Saran Keita Diakite, who I interviewed in Bamako in December of 2012, again at a time when the entire northern half of her country was occupied by jihadist armed groups. And she said something very simple to me, but I think it's very important. She said, international solidarity is very helpful. When you live such a crisis alone, it is much more difficult to bear. So I think part of my project, and I think the spirit of the conference this week as well, is precisely about trying to break down those kinds of walls of loneliness and put more people in touch who are doing this work and also put people in touch uh, with others who may appreciate uh, the work elsewhere, who share the same values. Now I know that the title of my book is sometimes seen as provocative, your fatwa does not apply here, and I wanted to explain its origin. To put it politely, I borrowed it, so those are not my words. Um, I took them from the writing of a Pakistani playwright named Shahid Nadim, who works with the Ajoka Theatre Company in Lahore. And here you see his wife, Madiha Gauhar, on the left, who directs the company and many of his plays, and I got to interview her in Lahore when I was there. Now, in one of their plays, Bulla, which you see here on the right, is about the renowned 18th century Sufi mystic Shah, who struggled against the mullahs of the early 18th century and was declared a heretic. I adapted my title from one of its lines and you can see the print is a bit small but you can see the stanza there. So what happens in this scene is that the young disciples of Shah are told by a religious leader that they have to stop singing because a particular fatwa, a religious order, forbids it. And one of the young men, Sona, whose words you see here, rebuffs this religious leader by saying, your fetwas do not apply here. And so I adapted the line from there. And what I wanted to do was to recognize that spirit of resistance that is in, found in so many places. That was the idea of the title. Now let me say, in case I don't get through everything that I have written, if there are two key takeaway points, if you need to leave early, you know, this, these are the bullet points. The first is, and it comes straight out of what I said about the title, the first is that really in each and every Muslim-majority context and diaspora population where fundamentalist movements are active, there are also heroic people defying them who are often women and women's human rights defenders, both male and female. And secondly, that those people face tremendous obstacles and they need thoughtful international support to succeed. Now I think a related point, perhaps an obvious point, is that to successfully champion women's human rights in these contexts now, you have no choice but to tackle this issue of fundamentalism without flinching. Sometimes it's seen as sensitive or controversial. I don't think we have any choice any longer. And we have to find a way to support the women's human rights defenders who are doing that work on the ground. Now, I note, and this is very important, this is a global problem, right? if we look at religious extremisms across the spectrum, I think here about the work of some feminist international lawyers, Christine Chinkin and Hilary Charlesworth, who in a very important book called The Boundaries of International Law, identified what they saw as the two leading obstacles to women's human rights uh, back in 2000. One of those two was religious extremism worldwide. So this is truly a global problem, although it it perhaps is particularly manifesting in virulent ways and widespread ways in Muslim-majority contexts uh, at the moment, so ways that are truly visible uh, transnationally. But ultimately, the point that I wanna make about Muslim fundamentalism is that it is not essentially a security question for Westerners, though it is also that, but at its core, At its most basic, it is a question of human rights for hundreds of millions of people who live in Muslim-majority countries and populations around the world. In Algiers, the feminist psychologist, Sharifa Bouata told me, Muslim fundamentalism is a deadly ideology which stands against choice, hope, change, and humanity. It represents the breaking of our countries. So I've been using this term uh, fundamentalism for a while now, and I'm glad not to be in an academic, uh, sort of dogmatic academic conference where we spend all our time talking about terminology, but I thought I might just define how I am using the term. So I cite a definition given by the Algerian sociologist maryame Elie Eli-Lucas, who founded a wonderful organization called the Network of Women Living Under Muslim Laws. And this is her definition of, note, fundamentalisms, see the S, so across different religious traditions. For Mary aime they are political movements of the extreme right that, in a context of globalization, manipulate religion to achieve political aims. So... For me, I understand these movements essentially as political. That's what they're about, taking power and manipulating their own very extreme right-wing interpretation of religion uh, to do that. So Sadia Abbas, who is a Pakistani post-colonial theorist teaching in the United States, refers to this as the radical politicization of theology. I don't have time to say too much more about this, but one thing that I think is critical for American audiences to understand is that these are radical movements. They are not traditional, they are not conservative they are actually most often trying to change the way that people live their relationship with Islam, not trying to preserve it. So for example, I often hear in the West, people make the reference that the burqa or the jilbab are the traditional garments of Muslim women. That is not true in many, many contexts. And I think about, again, my time in West Africa and how angry some of the women's human rights defenders in Niger were uh, who wear uh, boo-boos, wonderful long floral garments uh, with accompanying head wraps and you know, who were being told to wear uh, the hijab and the jilbab, and they said, we've, we've absolutely never worn these garments. These are not part of our tradition. So these are radical movements, not traditional. Now, in the contemporary period, Western discourse in response to these movements seems to primarily have offered two choices, both of which, in my view, are flawed. The first is the sort of openly discriminatory characterization that suggests that Islam is somehow inherently fundamentalist or all Muslims are really fundamentalist or something like that. And we hear this increasingly on the right, though not exclusively on the right. This is obviously just offensive and completely wrong. Unfortunately, on the left, in response, one too often hears a discourse that is either too politically correct to acknowledge the problem of fundamentalism at all, or its gravity, or even worse, actually engages in apologetics for it. And this does a grave disservice to the people on the front lines as well. Uh, So basically, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post called Why Bill Maher and Ben Affleck are Both Wrong. I'm asking them both to try to rethink. Neither one of these discourses, the discriminatory one or the sort of apologetic one, uh, are helpful. I am looking for an entirely different way of talking about this that is based in the lived experience and the hope, most importantly, the hope of the people on the front lines. So with all of that background, let me share as many of the stories as I can now sneak in. So the first story comes from Algeria again, from what we call in Algeria the dark decade of the 1990s. And I'm gonna start with a little bit of background because I think the other contexts that I'm gonna talk about, people may be familiar with from the recent news coverage. But Algeria in the 90s, I think, sort of seems like a distant memory. And when we do get any explanation of it, I find, for the most part, that that explanation is deeply flawed. So usually what we're told, if we're told anything about what happened in Algeria in the 90s, is that the fundamentalists were participating in the elections, their victory was then unfairly stolen from them, and that was when the trouble started. And this, I have to say, is at the very least a gross oversimplification of what actually happened. So back in 1988, Algeria experienced something like what came to be known as the Arab Spring of 2011, there were protests, they were repressed, and then there was a moment of opening and democratization and new political parties and much more freedom of the press and so on. Unfortunately, the, the groups that really exploited that moment of opening were fundamentalist groups who had been organizing in the mosques when others could not organize during the time of the single party. And it was really the Islamic Salvation Front, so-called, that rose. They openly declared that they would abolish democratic institutions if elected. They said that they would rule instead through a majlis ashura, a cabal of clergy. They campaigned under a banner that said, no charter, no constitution, according to God, according to the prophet. They described the mixing of the sexes as a cancer, and they besieged women's college dorms. And you have to understand that their words and deeds utterly terrified mainstream Algerians. The feast second in command, a firebrand named Ali al-Belhadj, said openly, "If we have the law of God, why should we need the law of the people?" About non-fundamentalist Algerians, again he openly raved, "One should kill these unbelievers." So then in the opening days of 1992, the closing days of 91 and the opening days of 1992 when it looked like the Islamic Salvation Front might win in the elections due to the lack of an alternative and then might never ever relinquish power, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated on the streets of Algiers back in a time before Twitter and before Facebook, before cell phones, they managed to organize and get themselves out there calling for a halt to the electoral process. One can agree with it, or one can disagree with it, and I understand that it's a controversial issue. But at the very least, you have to learn that history. You have to know what, in fact, happened on the ground. So the military-backed government did then intervene in January of 1992 and stopped the electoral process and later banned the Islamic Salvation Front. And as terrible as the situation became afterward, Many argued when I went to Algeria and did this research that it would have been much worse had these murderous fundamentalists been allowed to dismantle the republic from the inside. In any case, the cancellation of the second round of these elections was certainly no panacea, and a decade of conflict ensued with the military-backed government on one side and fundamentalist armed groups, some closely linked to the then-banned Islamic Salvation Front on the other. Now most of the bloodletting was directed by the armed groups against unarmed civilians, a violence that came to be known in Algeria simply as the terrorism. That violence killed between 100 and 200,000 people, including every single one of the women that you see here. Meanwhile, the forces of the state also carried out grave abuses, and the world offered little support to Algerians, sometimes even denying that the armed groups were carrying out the violence that they so openly claimed at home, or perhaps almost even worse, harboring some of its perpetrators in Germany, in the United Kingdom, and here in the United States. Anwar Haddam, spokesman of the Islamic Salvation Front, who claimed responsibility for terrorist atrocities on the streets of Algiers, was allowed to come here and in fact still unfathomably lives in the United States, has never been brought to justice. So that is the context for my first complete story, the story of Sharifa Qadar, who you see here. She is today one of Algeria's most important human rights advocates and the spokeswoman of the National Observatory on Violence Against Women, which the name sounds official, but it's actually an NGO. Uh, That group is currently fighting for a law on gender-based violence. She is also, like so many of her compatriots, a survivor of jihadist terrorism. On June 24, 1996, men from the armed Islamic group came to her family home in Bleda, heart of what was then called in Algeria the triangle of death, the worst hit zone of violence. These men came and they took the entire family captive. This was no random wartime violence, but rather the specific implementation of the armed men's ideology. And as Sharifa told me, their attack began with a long Islamist sermon, denouncing the family for many of their practices. The women didn't cover, there were people in the house who smoked, her sister Layla, a lawyer, refused to represent members of the armed groups, and so on. Then the situation deteriorated. First, the armed men took Sharifa's brother, Muhammad Reda, to his adjoining home, and then they came back for her sister, Layla. At this point, Sharifa decided she had to do something before it was too late. So profiting from the general confusion, she fled the house and went to summon the security forces. But it was already too late for Layla and Muhammad Reda. As Sharifa said, when I came back, I found my brother on a red velour carpet, but then I remembered that he didn't have a red carpet, He had a white carpet. It was his blood that had dried. They tortured him for a long time, and then they cut his throat. The scene was bleak. As Sharifa said, my mother they left for dead, but she was only wounded. My sister was wounded, but at the hospital they couldn't save her. It was hard to know what to say when hearing story after story like this, and I sometimes found myself asking inane questions, like this one, how did you survive this experience? Well, she looked at me, survived. She said, I I don't know that I actually did survive. She said, a part of you leaves with them. My brother was older than I, my sister was younger. It was as if my two eyes or my two legs were gone. But the amazing part about this story is that the tragedy did not stop Sharifa or the Qadar family. Actually, it started their efforts on behalf of other victims. And so only three months later, after this cataclysm at their house, on October 17, 1996, Sharifa and other victims founded Jeze Eruna, our Algeria, the Algerian Association of Victims of Islamist uh, Terrorism, along with other survivors. They did this to try to help others. Sharifa said people were burying their families alone. No one would go to the funerals because you would end up on a death list if you went to the funeral of someone who had been killed by a terrorist group. It was as though the victim was deemed guilty. And Sharifa knew what a difference this support made because thousands had attended the funerals of her prominent sister and brother. And she told me, my mother said, even in our sadness, we were lucky. And so I thought no victim should be buried in anonymity. So Jezé Eruna began routinely, the men and the women, attending the burials in the cemeteries of victims of terrorism, standing with the families across the Matija Plain, that triangle of death, in their worst moments. Though the 90s are thankfully over for Algeria, while they seem to be unfortunately returning elsewhere, Jezé Eruna's work is not over, it continues. Today, its members persist in trying to fulfill what they call the duty of memory, the duty of truth, the duty of justice, by taking care of the victims and fighting to preserve their history. So that collage that you saw of all of the, not all of the women, but many of the women who were killed in the 90s is something that Jeze Eruna collected the photos for and put together. So they're engaged in this work for memory and justice. Uh, Meanwhile, the government amnestied all of the perpetrators, both the state and the non-state perpetrators. And this was really intolerable for many of the victims. Uh, You lost your family and then your loss was erased. And the amazing thing was they sort of decided that the only way to respond to this was a metaphor. So the day of the referendum, Sharifa told me, the referendum on the amnesty, they went to the cemetery, here you see in the cemetery in Blida, and they buried copies of the Charter of National Reconciliation that granted the amnesty and their voting cards alongside the graves of their loved ones. As a result of this work, they faced pressure not only from the fundamentalists, but also from the state. Uh, And Sharifa, in particular, nearly lost her civil service job and did, in fact, lose her public housing, which she's such a fighter, she then went to court and actually got it back. But she continues to speak out. In the face of much of the politically correct Western rhetoric in recent years, she continues to insist, instead of just battling terrorism, you have to fight fundamentalism because it's the ideology, it's the fundamentalism that makes the bed of this terrorism. And so from Sharifa and her family, I learned that the greatest thing one can do with one's own suffering is to turn it into a steadfast determination to help others who face the same danger as so many of the participants in the conference this week have as well. And this brings me to a story from Nigeria. So I want to tell you a little bit about the work of a wonderful organization called Baobab for Women's Human Rights. Uh, I think this story is a reminder that the headlines we're now seeing about Boko Haram did not come out of nowhere but actually emerged out of a history in a particular context. The informational flyer for this organization for Baobab for Women's Human Rights notes that the Baobab connotes spiritual strength and fortitude in distressing times. I think that's a very good motto uh, in these days. And here you see Aisha Imam. Aisha Imam founded with other women, a Baobab for Women's Human Rights, and the women that I uh, heard about and Aisha whom I met really possessed those very traits from their logo of spiritual strength and fortitude. The group was founded back in 1996 and fights to protect women's rights in the maze of the Nigerian legal system. With her colleagues, Aisha tried to deconstruct what is Sharia, how does it get to be Sharia? They asked very brave questions like, is it divine or is it merely religious? Those are two very different things. Aisha Imam's efforts in this area inevitably brought her to work on fundamentalism because as she said, Fundamentalism hit us in Nigeria, so it was absolutely necessary, because otherwise fundamentalism was going to close us all down, close all the dreams down, close all the hope down. The backdrop for this, a resurgence of communalism, was sparked in Aisha's view by the harsh impact of structural adjustment and battles for resources. This in turn led to greater emphasis on Sharia law in Muslim majority segments of the population in the late 90s in the north of the country and then to enactment of new legislation in the early 2000s. As Aisha said, the reaction among the Muslim community was really mixed. Human rights workers and those who identify as Democrats argue that we need secular law. The laws being brought in under the guise of Muslim laws are conservative and detract from human rights. But Aisha also told me that even some religious conservatives opposed what she called sharianization on the grounds that you could not have sharia law before you had economic development. As she put it, you can't cut off people's hands for theft if they have no other means of gaining a livelihood. But any such opponents, uh, whether sort of on the democratic side or the religious conservative side, became targets, Aisha told me, of vigilante responses, targets of death threats, of beatings, threats of being burned in one state where the governor simply delayed enacting a sharia act and set up a committee to study the matter there were excuse me to study the matter there were threats to his family as fundamentalism began to transform nigerian lives then aisha and baobab became involved in the cases of women who came to face sentences of stoning most such cases began she told me with vigilante groups forcing the police to prosecute and ended in lots of people, as she said, convicted of Xena or unlawful sexual relations and whipped because they were not married. If people did not appeal, she told me, they were taken out and whipped right away. And so, she said, it was very important to establish the principle that you can appeal. It's your right. It's not anti-God to appeal. However, it was difficult to rally even the victims of such prosecutions to fight back in certain circumstances. She said they thought as Muslims, if they were charged under Muslim law, they could not defend themselves. It would be tantamount to arguing with God. And there you see the terrible danger of theocracy. While Aisha and her colleagues were working on the case of a 13-year-old mentally disabled girl who had been charged with zina and faced public whipping, they actually had to spend a week in the girl's village arguing with her father, her family head, and her village head that it was not impious to file an appeal under Sharia law. Though Aisha succeeded ultimately in convincing the family members, while the appeal was being filed, the non-literate teenage villager who had just given birth was taken out and whipped publicly for sex that she had been coerced to have. But the women of Baobab continued. They also raised money to support defendants in stoning cases who were unable to earn a living while being prosecuted. They tried to support them with the terrible stress. They tried to offer psychological support to overcome defendants' feelings that somehow they were challenging their own religion. Aisha said she thought ultimately Baobab's real contribution was to make it known that you could fight and you could win within your own community. And she said the more we did that, the more people were willing to fight against it and the less people felt like, I'm a Muslim, I cannot criticize. And the amazing part about this story is that every single one of the Sharianization stoning sentences has been successfully appealed through the work of women's human rights defenders, resulting in acquittals, or in one case, non-performance of sentence. And there have reportedly been no new cases of stoning sentences since Amina Lawal's acquittal, though the law remains on the books. So as difficult as this work is, and as sad as some of these stories are, the the hopeful upshot is that in the battle between stone and tree, it is the baobab that has prevailed. Today, as we know, Nigerian women's rights defenders, including some who are here and we're so grateful and proud that they're here, are actively involved in the campaign to free the Nigerian girls who have been kidnapped by Boko Haram. And I have to say, I find it very disappointing that the media attention to this issue has dwindled. It is an imperative necessity that the media speak about this regularly until the girls come home. But we also have to combat the ideology that is seeking to justify this practice Practice of sexual slavery. The armed groups did it in Algeria in the 90s and virtually no one spoke about it internationally. Uh, the jihadist groups are doing it in Iraq today uh, and ultimately it is not just this immediate instance of, of mass kidnapping which we must indeed end but it is also uh, the ideology that underlies it that seeks to justify it to se- seeks even to legalize it quote unquote uh, that we have to take on uh, and I think discrediting and defeating that ideology uh, is absolutely essential in this particular struggle for women's human rights. Now, I'm actually going to skip a story, uh, and I'm very sorry to do that, uh, a story from Iraq, uh, but I'd be happy to talk about Iraq in the Questions and answers, but I want to jump forward to a story from Afghanistan because, however, we may fault the media coverage on Iraq, at least there is some, and there is almost no very little coverage on Afghanistan at the moment. So, I do want to share uh, this story from there. And anyone who has seen the TED Talk has heard this story of Maria Bashir who is the first and the only woman chief prosecutor in Afghanistan, though she is one of many, many Afghan women's human rights defenders. Now, when I first met her, she came in surrounded by four large men with four huge guns pointed downward. Uh, But what I remember is that even though a very small person, she stood very straight and tall amongst them. But it turns out, in fact, she has to have 23 bodyguards. She only came in with four of them. And this is because she has been subjected to bomb attacks that nearly killed her kids and one that even took off the leg of one of her guards. She has been the chief prosecutor in Herat since 2007. And she told me that when she first started, people said they couldn't believe a woman could do a position like this. But as they began to evaluate her work, she felt that most people came to accept her. She actually had the guts to open a special unit to investigate cases of violence against women, which she says is the most important area in her mandate. When I met her in 2011, the police were still telling her, because of all of this work, that she was regularly being targeted by suicide bombers. And in fact, to prove the point, her assailants once sent an envelope to her house containing three bullets. Now, she takes on both uh, the Taliban, in a sense, uh, by going after the issue of violence against women, but she also takes on other actors because she she has very aggressively prosecuted in corruption cases. So she faces faces many risks at the same time. And I sort of asked her, again, one of my kind of simple questions, why do you keep doing this? Where does your motivation come from in the face of this threat? And she laughed. She said, well, that's the question that everybody asks me. As she put it, why you risk not living. And she said very simply, very humbly, with no bravado whatsoever, that it was simply that a better future for the Maria Bashirs to come was to her worth the danger. And that she knew that if people like her did not take risks, there would not be better futures. Now, the chief prosecutor told me she was very worried about the possible outcome of government negotiations with the Taliban that were going on at that time. She said, if we give them a place in the government, who will protect women's rights? And as I was leaving, she she very strongly urged me. She said, you must say to the international community not to forget the promise about women's rights now because now what they want is peace with the Taliban. Now, a few weeks after I met her, after I left Afghanistan, I saw a very terse headline on the internet. An Afghan prosecutor had been assassinated. And I googled desperately, because it was one of those tiny stories. Now, very thankfully, the victim that day turned out not to be Maria Bashir, though sadly another Afghan prosecutor was gunned down on his way to work. But the, the, the fear that I felt for her in that moment while I was Googling uh, just reminded me yet again of the incredible risks that she will face in the year ahead as international forces depart Afghanistan. And so what I really took away from this story is that we have to continue to care about what happens to all the Maria Bashirs there after international forces leave, uh, when I fear the international media will leave as well and I often hear her words in my head whenever I hear terrible news from Afghanistan, saying again, something so optimistic, the situation of the women of Afghanistan will be better. She's absolutely convinced of this. We should pave the ground for this, even if we are killed. It seems to me that there are many lessons we could learn from these amazing stories. The first, obviously, is that the struggle for women's rights and women's substantive equality is not a side issue or an add-on. It is an essential component of the fight against the form, against all forms of extremism and certainly against the one that I am talking about tonight, namely Muslim fundamentalism. Governments sometimes seem to think that the gender component is optional or an add-on, that it can be dumped when it is inconvenient. I think about the famous leaked State Department memo referring to Afghan women People like Maria Bashir as pet rocks that you cannot always afford to keep in your backpack. Uh, that is absolutely wrong. It is not a side issue, it goes to the very core of the issue. Uh, and I always think of the words of the Nigerian sociologist Zainabu Hadari, uh, pictured here, who said to me every step forward in the fight for women's rights is a piece of the struggle against fundamentalism. And I think that is absolutely critical. Another point uh, that Sharifa Qadar's stories that I think many of these stories really underscore is that it is impossible to fight against jihadist terrorism without taking on the underlying ideology. Otherwise, the problem just keeps uh, recurring. And so this strategy that is sometimes employed by governments that what they should do is partner or ally with quote unquote moderate fundamentalists, uh, an oxymoron if ever there was one, we're even told now there are quote moderate Taliban. I don't know what that means exactly. Uh, That is a very dangerous strategy that actually nourishes the very ideology that gives rise uh, to this violence that governments say that they want to fight. Uh, And finally, uh, and perhaps most controversially of the three lessons, is this one. So we have talked a lot about tolerance, and I think tolerance is a very positive and important thing. But paradoxically, in a way, I think I'm here to advocate for a very specific kind of intolerance, and that is intolerance of intolerance. Because I think that tolerance of intolerance actually doesn't produce tolerance right? It has very paradoxical and dangerous results. I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about an ideology and organizations that seek to advance an extreme right-wing ideology. Now, as an international lawyer, I am in favor of peaceful resolution of disputes whenever it is possible, and I believe in reaching out to communities and to populations. But I do believe, and Lena Abu Habib said this this afternoon as well, that negotiating or accommodating approaches to radical jihadist groups can actually be quite dangerous and are perceived by those groups as a sign of weakness to be exploited rather than as a genuine opportunity to move forward. We saw this in Algeria during the 1990s when civil society and women's groups and intellectuals were standing firm against fundamentalism and terrorism and the Algerian government sometimes tried to negotiate with those same armed groups Every time they did, the violence of those groups would escalate, would spike tremendously. Uh, So that, I think, is a very difficult paradox that we have to grapple with. Uh, And I must stress here, I am not a hawk. I guess the way I like to think of myself is a dove who has come to understand that doves have to defend their habitat from extremism to have any chance at survival. I also think that the project of writing the history of those who have resisted and sacrificed and preserving the histories that have been written is an utterly vital part of the struggle against extremism. And I encourage all of those of you who are here who are doing that work to start writing your histories and take the histories and the testimonies of those around you. It is so important to document what is being done. During my research, I was given a copy of the newspapers published at Tahrir Jaud Press House in Algiers in 1996 on the day after an armed Islamic group bombing there killed press workers and their neighbors. But the amazing part again about this story is not the bombing and not the hateful ideology that motivated it, but the way that people reacted. Somehow, the journalists, many of whom were fasting for Ramadan and all of whom were facing unrelenting danger, rallied that same night, that same night that they had pulled their colleagues out of the rubble, and they got back to work, and they actually got the papers out the following day, working in the rubble of their compound to do so. Now, I was given the papers that were published that day. It was a compendium issue that was put out, and that is now one of my most prized possessions. And in one of the articles in those that day's papers, I will never forget what a woman named Rania Ukazi wrote. She posed a question. She said, she asked really, pen against Kleshnikov. Is there a more unequal struggle? And she answered the question herself with a commitment. She said, what is certain is that the pen will not stop. And for me, above all else, this conference has been a reminder and this research was a reminder that to defeat all forms of extremism and terror, we must honor Rania's pledge. The voice must not stop. The pen must not stop. And I thank you all here tonight for exemplifying that spirit, and I wish you the greatest of luck in your ongoing work. And I would ask you please to help me to share these stories so that we can keep the spirit of all of those who have done that work and paid the ultimate price alive. Thank you very much.